Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, host and creator of the Right Fit Method, the key to professional and personal success. Now, let's join Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. Perhaps you are curious about the extent to which I implement my Right Fit Method in my own life. The answer is all the time. It works. In fact, I had a memorable birthday with Joan Rivers in which I used my Right Fit Method. On March 30th, my birthday, I was strolling down Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills and spied Joan Rivers filming her television show, How'd You Get So Rich, featured on TV Land. I crossed the street and joined the small crowd. Within moments, she was standing next to me. We were eye to eye. The cameras were rolling as she immediately began firing questions. I fired back. At the end of the interview, the crowd scattered and I signed release papers. I thought, I am the right fit interviewee for Joan Rivers. The encounter with Joan was exhilarating, memorable, and set the birthday standard. I remembered how my dad taught me when I was a child to understand with whom I'm dealing. Thank you, Dad. I understood Joan Rivers well. Watch for me today, May 12th, on the Joan Rivers Show, How'd You Get So Rich on TV Land. If you miss the show on television, see the second show of the season on TV Land's website. In the event there's a last-minute show change, watch for me on future shows. Enjoy the show, with or without me. Tonight, I will be watching it at 10 p.m. Pacific Time on TV Land. Let's dig deeper into the right fit method. In uncertain times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. Today, I will focus on how to implement my right fit method to balance passion with risk. Are you afraid to take the risk to follow your passion and change your core identity? If you use my right fit method, you can reduce the risk. You cannot ignore your passion because it is your career fuel and the foundation of career success. Have you ever wondered why your search for the right fit spouse, the right fit house, or the right fit career has not produced the results you want? I know why. We search for the best. What's amazing is that when we search for the best, we frequently select wrong fits. 
Perhaps you are perplexed. Picture a rat-infested barrel of rotten apples. Compare and contrast. Select one. What do you have? A rat-infested rotten apple. If the person you pick to marry is one of those rotten apples, you have picked the wrong fit. If the career you selected is one of those rotten apples, you picked the wrong fit. You must search for the right fit. To do that, you must create a blueprint of the right fit for whatever or whomever you are searching. Here's a simple example. If you are planning to buy a car, I expect you would figure out the specs of the right fit car. This would include the year, model, price, and color. The list could go on and on. That list is what I call a blueprint. Is each spec of equal importance? Probably not. I expect that some specs are absolutely necessary. Others matter less, but nice to have. Weighting the importance of each spec turns the blueprint into a blended blueprint, which is a term I created. If you have lots of blended blueprints, you can stop making wrong choices. I'll show you how to do this during the interview segment of the show. Onward and upward. In today's special call-in show, the second in a two-part series on core identity, I will explore the relationship between passion and risk in my guest interviews. Many of us do not follow our passion because we are terrified of taking risks. Are you following your passion? If not, why not? Those that are passionate about pursuing their right fit core identity use passion to propel them, pushing fear into the background. Some do this early in life, others later in life. Should age be a factor in following our passion? During the show, be sure to take my core identity passion risk assumptions quiz to find out what erroneous assumptions you are making which can prevent you from changing core identities. To learn more about finding your core identity right now, read Chapter 4, Your Core Identity, Know Thyself Now, in my book, Win Without Competing. Before I speak with our call-in guests, I want you to take my Core Identity Passion Risk Assumptions Quotient Quiz. C-I-P-R-A-Q. Please take a piece of paper and write the numbers 1 to 5 so that you can jot down your response next to each number. Write T if the statement is true and F if the statement is false. Question 1. I am too old to change my core identity. Question two, I am too young to change my core identity. Question three, I am fearful and cannot follow my passion. 
I cannot follow my passion because I have no support from family and friends. Question five. I cannot find my passion, so I might as well forget about it. Hold on to your responses. After I speak with the call-in guests, I will give you the answers with explanations. On to my guests. My first guest is Rabbi Larry Seidman, who spent most of his career as an engineer and business person. Welcome, Rabbi, to Win Without Competing. Good afternoon, Dr. Arlene. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you. you. Good to be here. You hold a Ph.D. in engineering. Why did you select engineering as a career? You know, from the time, earliest time I can remember, uh, I knew I was going to be an engineer. I think I was eight years old or ten years old, and I was taking apart broken toasters to see why they were broken, and I was reading the, the uh, science section of the library, and when time came to choose a high school, I chose a technical high school, Brooklyn Technical High School. It was a very fine school, but it was focused on producing engineers. And all my education from high school through college through graduate school was always engineering. It was just like a foregone conclusion. What I think is interesting is when we spoke prior to the show, you told me when you were a child that someone told you you should be a rabbi. What did you think when you were told that? It, it, it just never entered my consciousness as a reality. I, I didn't know anybody who was a rabbi. I mean, obviously, obviously I knew the rabbi, but the rabbi was a distant person you never spoke to. And it just seemed so far from any uh, set of skills I thought I had, any consciousness I had of what rabbis did, that it never entered reality as a possibility. It's interesting. So you you didn't connect to it. You heard it, but it didn't it didn't hit you. Absolutely. I I knew I was going to be an engineer, and I knew I understood science and engineering, and rabbis did something different that just seemed outside the range of consciousness. Couldn't imagine. Did your parents encourage you to become an engineer, or did you figure this out yourself? watching how you were drawn to doing certain kinds of things? I think it was a combination. I think my parents, you know, my parents were first-generation immigrants into this country, and they were very concerned that I have a respectable career that paid a fair salary, that worked for, they liked the idea of working for a large company. It was understood, recognizable, had stability, uh, assurance, you know, all those kinds of criteria that they, they understood. So I think they were looking. They were happy with something of that nature, and uh, I think again, probably making a living as a rabbi was not something they would have understood. What did your father do, and what did your mother do? My father was a furrier. Uh, he came to this country as a as a about 12 years old, and it was quickly he was apprenticed as a furrier. So he actually finished his high school while working during the day and going to school at night. Uh, and in, in his family, in his social circle, that was considered uh, a high-class profession. Uh, my mother was a housewife until I was about 12 or 13, and then became a bookkeeper and ultimately retired as a credit manager some years later. When you decided early in life 
that you were going to become an engineer. Did you feel at that time that it was the right fit for you? Absolutely. I, I was I was good in, in, in engineering school and from high school all the way on. Uh, I got good grades. I was accepted as a good contributor. All my jobs got good performance reports. I was promoted and given raises. And uh, among the, the collection of engineers, I was relatively highly paid in my group. Uh, I retired uh, as, from Boeing as a senior manager, which is a relatively senior position. Uh, so I would say a successful career all the way through. And I was confident at it and enjoyed it. You also had another career in the business world as an entrepreneur. How did you jump into that? And did you do that concurrently while you were an engineer, or did you take a break from engineering? How did that work? I, I think when you when you get a little up the chain of engineering, so to speak, stop being a working engineer and become a supervisor and a manager, then business considerations become more and more important. And as I was doing this, there were opportunities to, to run a small company, opportunities to start a small company in the engineering-related business. In my case, it was initially wind energy, later consulting, and then uh, product sales, but all in the general vicinity of, of technology-related areas. So they all, they all spun off my engineering skills and added to it uh, business management skills and entrepreneurial skills. Now, how did you really decide that you wanted to become a rabbi and at age 64 went to rabbinical school? Tell us about that. Fascinating, yeah. Uh, along, along the engineering way, the job began to lose its passion. I, I always enjoyed engineering, but it was kind of like I'm doing the same thing over and over again. And it was performing for a very limited uh, sort of marketplace. And I reached a point in my life where, as you think about things of bigger significance, the question arose of, am I really helping society? Uh, can I be doing something more to help people individually? Can I focus more on... Uh, what the real, what the world is really all about, what, what, my, what my inner soul is really looking for, how do I explore uh, God, significance, religion, uh, those kinds of questions. So I searched around a little bit and found there was a school in Los Angeles called the Academy for Jewish Religion California, AJRCA, and they were specifically focused on educating people who are working. So the school was basically structured around Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday classes, with the rest of the week not having classes, with the idea that many students are working in jobs. So I was able for the first semester to save my vacation and tell my boss for the next six months I'm not going to be here on Mondays, and attend class every Sunday and Monday and try it out. And that worked very well for the first semester. So then I went to my boss and said, gee, how would it be if I worked half-time for the next year? And they said, well, okay, that's fine. So I worked half-time and went to school Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. <laughs> you, were really, you were really, I guess, testing the waters. It's like you first stuck in one toe. Then you decided to stick in more toes. Then you were getting ready to put your whole foot into the water. 
I mean, you really, I think, were very cautious about your approach. Would you agree, Rabbi? Engineers are very conservative people. <laughs> I, I realize that. That's why I'm saying that you very carefully did it so that you actually didn't really assume much in the way of risk because we were working, they obviously were comfortable with you and were, I guess, eager to accommodate you. Would you say that's correct? Because that's, that's not always the case. That's not always the case. As I said, I mean, I, I was I was viewed as a good performer. I was a contributor. Uh, they got their money's worth out of half time, just they did out of you know eighty percent time or full time. Uh, and it was a large company, which is very accommodating. And, and actually, along the way, I'm not sure exactly when it was in that process. I went to my boss and said, you know, this is what I'm thinking about doing. I'm thinking about becoming a rabbi and and uh, doing this. And he said, I respect that. You know, I admire that. Give it a shot. I'll support you. And he was very cooperative in, in um, my exploring that at the halftime basis. When did you actually say to yourself that engineering, even though it had an entrepreneurial bent, was becoming the wrong fit and you needed to create a blueprint because you viewed what was important to you from a different perspective so that the specs of the blueprint changed and then the weightings of each of the specs changed and in essence you had a new blended blueprint. Right. So how did this really come about? I mean, was there some type of, I mean, yes, I understand you were getting tired of doing the same thing, but you could have decided to do something that isn't necessarily becoming a rabbi, which required going to school from ages 64 to 68. Right. <laughs> I mean, think about it from that perspective. I mean, that was a commitment. Yes. I, I think there were several things in the in the blended blueprint. One was uh, a, a decreasing enthusiasm, I guess, for engineering. It was kind of becoming, I know how to do this, and I can do it sort of one-handed. Uh, second is, as I was nearing potentially a retirement age, then the pressure of earning a living became less significant. I, I had a, a pension. I, I could I could retire officially and take a pension. I delayed doing that, but I could have done that uh, initially. So there was more of a fallback plan. And I think there was more pull, as I said, to saying uh, what is really significant. So I think in the few years before, there began to be a pull. And I guess it probably was not crystallized as clearly as saying, oh, I'm going to be a rabbi. And I think that was crystallized in part when I heard about the school and said, gee, that, that, that could work. That could be it. So it was a combination of some of general uneasiness and the plan crystallized around an opportunity that made a, a real possibility. Because you waited a long time to make the change. Would you say that had to do with the fact that you didn't suddenly see yourself leaving your position and switching careers all of a sudden? Why do you think you waited so long to make the change? I think it was I think it's very hard to imagine a very different kind of career. It, it it's easier to look back and say, Oh, that was a natural fit. Uh, all the same core skills apply and, and it, it 
such an obvious, you know, works so well. Uh, but at the time, it's like saying, well, why don't you move to Hong Kong? Well, why would I think about moving to Hong Kong? <laughs> you know, I'm an American. I don't, I don't live in Hong Kong. And, and it's only when, when uh, something comes along and says, here's an opportunity. You know, I guess an analogy might be if somebody said, why don't you move to Hong Kong? You would say, why would I move to Hong Kong? And if somebody called you and said, do I have an opportunity for you in Hong Kong? You'd say, well, let's talk about it. And you might well go. But, but how, do you, how, do you, how do you make this opportunity real and concrete in your mind? It's really hard. And I think for me it was finding a school that made it a real possibility. You call yourself a rational rabbi and write a weekly column on religion for the Orange County Register. What is your mission, which again would relate to your blueprint that you outlined for us? Thank you. I think the mission that I feel I have, I, my unique fit in, in this world, is, well, let me go back a few steps and talk about my experience at, at rabbinic school. And that is there were many classes where people would talk about traditional theology, traditional concepts, uh, ideas of what the Bible is, and so on. And I would sit there and say, you know, I just don't believe that. I, I don't believe, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't believe that. And I still have in my being the engineering mentality that requires analysis, proof, data. You know, I can't go all fuzzy and say, oh, I wish that were true, therefore I'll assume it's true. So I still have both the, I still have the rational part of me that requires reality and concreteness along with the rabbinic training and the understanding of God, religion, Bible, and so on. Now, the mission is, uh, there's more and more evidence that surveys emerging and personal conversations with people who believe in God, experience God, uh, love the Bible, respect the Bible, believe the Bible with belief in quotation marks, but don't believe everything they were taught in Sunday school. And people in Sunday school, of course, are given an understanding of religion and God and theology and Bible and so on, appropriate for somebody who is five, six, seven, eight, nine, or ten. Uh, but then they grow up and they tend to drop out. And nobody is really working saying, I know, oh, I shouldn't say nobody, many people are working, but I think I'm, I'm probably one of the most explicit about it. Work with people saying, I don't believe this, I doubt this, this story I heard doesn't make sense to me. Does that mean I can no longer be religious? Does that mean I don't believe in God anymore? Does that mean I can no longer pray? And my answer, of course, is it doesn't mean that at all. It means you're an adult thinking adult questions, and let's understand God, religion, prayer, etc., in an adult kind of way, in a rational way. I'm not. I don't. I don't talk about faith. I talk about thought, and I think one can get at belief in God, religion, etc., through thought, without without saying faith. Faith, in many people's vocabulary, faith means this does not make any sense, but I want you to believe it anyway. Right, that's right. I, no, no, I, I think it's an interesting distinction. Now, I know that you have a website, uh, rationalrabbi.com, and I'm sure they can learn more about your approach there. Is that correct, rationalrabbi? Absolutely correct. <laughs> correct. Rationalrabbi.com, and if people... Uh, have some more questions they want to talk about or want to speak more or want me to speak someplace else, uh, they, they can reach me through that website. Terrific. Now, your wife, she changed careers too. She Absolutely. was also an engineer. 
how old was she when she decided to become a rabbi? Well, she was a year younger than I was. She is a year, year younger than I am, and she waited about a year, so I guess she was essentially the same age I was. Why did she wait so long? Yeah, I think it's exactly the same story. She was she has been an engineer. She was a she's actually a more interesting story. You want to want to interview her sometime. That she was trained as a biologist and kind of backed into engineering when Lockheed hired her and made her an engineer. Uh, and she was an engineer then for the last I don't know twenty years of her life or so, and never thought about anything else. And when I started rabbinic school. She was watching me do homework, watching me read, watching me study, frequently talking about it. And she said, I love that. Why, why are you having all the fun? I want to do that too. And, of course, I said, then do it. <laughs> so she did. Uh, so she followed along as soon as she saw what, what the reality was of what I was doing. And I think she also followed a similar path of, of taking some time off. Uh, and, and trying it for a while before she committed to actually retiring, quitting work, and doing that full-time. So now we're going to have rabbi and rabbi. Very interesting. That's right. <laughs> Terrific. What advice do you have for those who are contemplating changing careers? I, I think it's explore and test. You know, this is kind of the engineering method. And, and I was I was perhaps luckier than most in that I could try it out. But many people have ability to try it out, talk to people, think about it seriously, look at what the job is really like. I, I think probably the core thing that people don't think about is uh, what are the skills, what are the characteristics that really make it the right fit? And in, in my case, if you said, gee, engineering and being a rabbi have nothing in common, uh, in my case, it's exactly the opposite. I mean, the, the things I did at work, uh, working with groups of people, understanding what somebody is trying to achieve, uh, communicating to them what the problem is, how they get the answer, trying to find alternate ways of thinking about things. Uh, so most of these engineering skills are the same skills I'm using, but, a diff but I'm not talking about satellites and communications and rockets. I'm talking about what the Bible means and what prayer means and what's, what your meditation is about. But the skill set is, is surprisingly similar and thought processes are similar, and it's very rewarding. Well, Rabbi Seidman, it has been a pleasure having you today as my guest. Thank you for joining me from Irvine, California. Thank you, Dr. Arlene. And perhaps I will have your wife on. Oh, she'll, she'll love it. My next guest is Wave Vidmar, a digital video expert who at age 39 made a dramatic career change. Welcome, Mr. Vidmar, to Win Without Competing. Good afternoon, Dr. Arlene, and thank you for having me on your show. My pleasure. You discovered your passion early in life. At age five, you explored the world on buses. A bus door would open and you would jump on the bus. At age six, you decided to become an explorer. At age 39, you fulfilled your passion. You went on the Internet to look for a self-challenge. 
what was your blueprint of the Right Fit Self Challenge? Well, um, I knew I needed something that would be significant in my life. I also wanted something that would be significant to others, and I wasn't sure exactly how that would be, but I knew that if I kept searching and examining the details of what it is that I was looking for, that it would kind of show itself, and it did. When you when you say you weren't sure what you were looking for, well, how did you first figure out you needed a self-challenge? I mean, what prompted you to think from that perspective? I don't think that that's a common approach to life. I mean, I don't wake up every morning and say, I need a self-challenge because I feel like I already have challenges on a daily basis. So what what... Let's dig a little bit deeper and see where we can go from that so that our listeners will learn what really motivated you to search for a self-challenge. What was missing in your life? Well, I don't know if I would say uh, maybe maybe uh, you've touched on something I hadn't thought about before missing, uh, but more so it came from uh, I had just finished writing a 1,000-page technical book. Uh, I and uh, the year before that, I had ridden my bicycle across America, which was another large challenge that I had wanted ah. to do myself. And I decided to go to the next level in my life. I wanted to see what could I do that would be something out of my capabilities that would require me to learn new capabilities and skills and also test me ultimately, and that was going solo to the North Pole. Okay, so that was your blueprint, and going solo to the North Pole was what you concluded would be the right fit self-challenge. Is that correct? That's correct. Terrific. Let's go further. I know when we chatted prior to the show, you described what had occurred and also told me you were the first American to go solo to the North Pole and that you had left from Russia and you got there by skiing and swimming. Tell us about all of it. It's very exciting. <laughs> well, uh, um, there's there's quite a bit to an expedition of that nature. It takes a year or several years to plan and prepare for, and in my case, I took a year. And uh, I decided I wanted to go to the North Pole, but uh, I didn't know any anything about it, so I had to do a lot of research. And I reached out to anybody who had ever done it before and uh, started learning, uh, learning about not just how to survive in minus 40 or 50 or 60 degree temperatures or to swim across the frozen Arctic uh, in small patches of water, but also how to raise sponsors, uh, work with the press and the media, how to market myself, uh, because these are extremely expensive expeditions. Uh, It's not every day you spend a couple hundred thousand dollars to go on a vacation. But also, too, this was not a simple expedition either from what you had described, that you you were hurt in the process? Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, <laughs> there was probably just about any other way going to the North Pole would be easier than the way that I chose, and that was to go solo unsupported, which means that I would carry all of my gear with me. And during the trek, yes, I did have my leg bone crushed and five of the six ligaments holding my my foot onto my, my leg uh, were severed. Uh, I had skin falling off my face. I lost some all of my toenails, uh, some fingernails. Um, had anybody given me a list of what I would sacrifice to accomplish my goal, I probably wouldn't have gone on it. 
But when you're in the moment and you've dedicated your life and you're passionate, again, the passion and the risk about what it is that you're doing, uh, the sacrifice is very little. Well, how long did it take you to go from Russia to the North Pole? Just over two months. Oh, my. I understand why you were in such bad shape. Uh, well, uh, things happen, and uh, the, the art is extremely aggressive on equipment. Uh, every day I was spending at least a half hour to an hour repairing gear. Um, everything broke. What might work fine at uh, minus 35 degrees wouldn't work uh, at minus 37. So uh, there was a lot of unexpected nature that was built into the trip, even with the best experience and experts advice that I'd gotten. You are now 45. You are preparing to row solo from the U.S. to Europe in a 24-foot rowboat. What is the purpose of this expedition, and how does it match your blueprint? Well, again, it's a it's a goal of self-challenge, but I realized when I went solo to the North Pole that I was put in a position that I touch a lot of people in in a way that is rather unique, in that they see me as if this guy can do it, maybe what can they do? And so I've tried to expand upon that theme and try to get people to reach beyond their own perceived limitations and boundaries. So for this expedition, rowing across the North Atlantic Ocean, it's not just about me rowing across the Atlantic. It's also how can I inspire others to see beyond their perceived limitations and boundaries, as well as we're collecting a lot of data and information from the expedition that will be used uh, for others. Looking back at your career, which included being a successful entrepreneur who started two companies and sold them, why do you think you waited until age 39 to become a professional explorer? That's a great question. Um, I, I've always been very conscious of time, and I, I decided I could keep following different paths in life, which were fine and, and fun, uh, but it wasn't really my true passion, what, what was deep-seated inside me. And getting back to getting on the bus at five years old, it was an adventure. Um, it's, I wanted more adventure in my life without just risking my life, but doing something meaningful and, and purposeful. And uh, going to the North Pole kind of catapulted me into the professional level. Prior to the show, we talked about fear. You said that it is what you do with fear that makes the difference. What do you do with fear? Well, um, a lot of people like to run away from fear, avoid it, negate it. Um, I take fear and I embrace it. Uh, I give it a big old bear hug. Um, I want to I take and be eye to eye with that fear. Not that I'm, I'm wanting to be afraid of things or uh, challenge myself in ways that are going to scare me, but when I do encounter something that I'm fearful of, if I can grab onto it and I can pull it close to me, it's going to make me more powerful. And instead of being a person that's stopped in his tracks, I'm a much more powerful individual. It's interesting. I remember when I was a child, if I was fearful of something, my dad would tell me that if I started my life as a child fearful, I'd be spending my whole life fearful so that he taught me at an early age to not think that way. I think he did me a, a big favor. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. 
what is the relationship between fear and taking calculated risks? Well, uh, I, I believe fear is kind of like a, a built-in uh, guidance system. Um, often we have fear, and through many, many years of evolution, uh, that it keeps us safe. It's telling us that there's something that we should be aware of. Now, if you let fear stop you, that's bad. But it's okay to get it to double-check. Uh, maybe it's, it means uh, checking the inflation in your tires in your car because uh, you had a bad feeling about uh, driving down the road or uh, uh, a whole, whole bunch of different things. Fear is actually our friend. What is the relationship between passion and risk from your perspective? Because I think that people really, uh, when you heard the rabbi, he put in one toe and then another toe. He very carefully calculated his risks, and he explained, I'm sure you heard, about this was the engineering uh, approach, which makes sense. So he applied what he's used to doing. Yeah, um, uh, uh, Rabbi Larry, uh, he was uh, very fun to, to listen to, and uh, I got a lot of it as well. Um, as far as passion and risk, uh, there'll be many that sh- if you encounter, if you ask them, especially very successful people, if they risked anything to get to where they are, and almost invariably every one of them will tell you that they risked quite a bit. And it almost seems in our in our lives nowadays that your reward is almost um, balanced by how much risk you were able to take with with uh, your endeavor or your goal. And I'm not saying uh, to do something foolishly. Uh, I think Rabbi uh, Larry had a, a, a good plan in that he took calculated risk. And for some, they may not be as calculated, or they might be more calculated in what they do. Uh, but you, if you follow your passion and you're willing to risk what it is that you believe in, no matter what it is, I think most people have a very good outcome. You believe in the core principles of my right fit method, which include to get the competition, set the standard, and win without competing. And I think that Rabbi Larry also agrees with these core principles. How did these beliefs come about in your life? Uh, I, I was taught early on not to pay attention to others. And um, I think that uh, that covers kind of two aspects of your right fit method in that uh, if you forget about what the competition is doing and just do your own best, um, we'll often exceed what we thought we were possible of as well as maybe what others were possible of, uh, thought you were possible of, um, or what they'd even uh, been able to perform at. And by doing that, I believe you also set the standard. Um, if you're not following somebody else's blueprint and you're following your own, you are going to set the standard regardless. I couldn't have said it better myself. In the United States, explorers are not frequently talked about in the media. Why do you think that is the case? Well, uh, in contrast to my European counterparts, uh, they're, they're brought up in a different society where being outdoors um, is much more integrated into their their personalities and their character. Uh, most um, Europeans have been skiing on very uh, high altitude glaciers um, as small children, whereas they come over here to the United States and they go down one of our Black Diamond runs and they're kind of bored. It's not very much of a challenge to them. 
So uh, the perceptions and the experiences that uh, my European counterparts have are far different than Americans. And that's not to knock Americans. We, we have a lot of things that we do that uh, they're not familiar with as, as well. What advice do you have for those who are contemplating a career change? Uh, <laughs> if you're at all contemplating a career change, absolutely without hesitation you should find out about it. You might even know what exact job that it is that you want, but if you create a blueprint and if you write down the things that you do like, uh, I like to work with others. Um, I want to be in a medium to small size company. I want to have an impact. If you do all of those things, you'll start to develop a a plan on, in one aspect, but also you'll, the core aspects of what it is that you could be doing, and you might find the right job will meet you with all of those uh, details that you've ironed out. Well, I want to wish you much luck on your next expedition. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mr. Vidmar, from Augusta, Georgia. It's been a pleasure, Dr. Arlene. Thank you. Let's go back to the core identity, passion, risk, assumptions, quotient, quiz. Question one, I am too old to change my core identity. Clearly, after hearing about uh, Rabbi Larry and his wife, we know that from experience, it's not too old to change your core identity. It's a mindset, I think, that people have that we relate activities to our age. And I really believe that we set up barriers which prevent us from being successful. As the writer Erica John said, we create our own prisons. Question two, I am too young to change my core identity. Again, forget about the age. False. Question three, I am fearful and cannot follow my passion. Both of my guests expressed their risk in a different way and how they calculate their risk. One guest slowly tested things out. The other guest took it more from an adventure's perspective. But whatever perspective you take, you must keep your fear in harnessed so that it helps you rather than hinders you. False. Question four. I cannot follow my passion because I have no support from family and friends. If you really want to do something, and it truly is your passion, it's up to you to take charge. It's up to you to manage the process. It's up to you to get yourself there. False. Question five. I cannot find my passion, so I might as well forget about it. I would suggest that if you're having difficulty finding your passion, Search back into your childhood and figure out the kinds of things you like to do. Perhaps you've forgotten about them 
for a variety of different reasons. Perhaps your parents told you it wasn't the right fit for you for whatever reason. Search back into your childhood and see if you can reconnect to your passion. False. I would also like to say that with respect to passion, you can have more than one passion in your life. So you certainly can have many careers and many passions. It doesn't just have to be one passion. The question is, when the passion wears out, what do you do next? And that's what you have to be watchful of. When you are no longer passionate about what you are doing, you must search now to figure out what to do. Let's go back and talk a bit more about what else you can do with respect to learning more about the core identity. Given that many are struggling with, this core, with their core identities at this time and need a framework to find the solution, I recommend that you read Chapter 4 of my book, When Without Competing. The title is Your Core Identity, Know Thyself Now. Also, be sure to listen to my April 21st show on core identity, which is the first of this two-part series. To do that, visit Dr. Barrow, that's drbarrow, D-R-B-A-R-R-O dot com, where you will see all my archived shows. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. Sign up for my professional and personal newsletters on the homepage, read excerpts from Win Without Competing, learn how to master the right fit method, and change both your professional and personal life. Visit the career, and coach, the career coaching and personal coaching pages. As a professional speaker, I motivate audiences to throw out their barrels of rat-infested rotten apples and switch to the standard of the right fit. To contact my office, please call 310-441-5305. That's 310-441-5305. My company, Barrow Global Search, is based on the west side of Los Angeles near UCLA. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road and you will find professional and personal success. I look forward to having you join me in June for my next show. Thank you for listening to the Win Without Competing show. Goodbye for now, Dr. Arlene.